Hi, welcome to Offscript. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Today on the show, we'll be reviewing the actually recently released, I don't want to say brand new because it's been out for a few weeks, documentary, uh, Won't You Be My Neighbor? And we'll be taking a look at Peyton Reed's new Marvel film, Ant-Man and the Wasp. But first, the news. Uh, oh, uh, before I get too far into it, we're also going to be having a, a, a subtle discussion on, on something that might be a little controversial in the, in the film world Uh came out this week some other news and we'll get to that but before then the actual news yes star wars episode nine eyes carrie russell for a role in the new film carrie russell is of course the star of the americans on fx and she's also been in some other stuff and we were talking about her before the show she's an interesting actress andy <laughs> she is when i first think of carrie russell the first thing that pops into my mind is Honey, I Blew Up the Kid. Which I forgot she was From in. From 1992. That's like, the because I saw that in theaters, and I just, every time I think of her, I think of her playing the babysitter in that movie. The babysitter in Honey, I Blew Up the Kid. I don't know if I ever saw Honey, I Blew Up the Kid. Definitely Honey, Shrunk the Kid. Definitely Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. I saw mm -hmm. that one. Um, don't remember Honey, I Blew Up the Kid. But yes, uh, she is supposed <laughs> to be in the new Star Wars movie. How exactly is she supposed to be involved? Well, they 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 haven't really said much. Um, it, the role calls for action heavy fight scenes, mm. so that's about it. But but um, Carrie Russell was in Mission Impossible three back in two thousand six, um, so she's capable of doing action. I'm interested to see what kind of role she'll play. In it. It's I feel like the sequel trilogy it's added a lot of new characters, um, and I'm not sure if that's going to help or hurt the new film. But it's great to see another uh, female actress in the uh, lead role. Mission or in. Mission Roll. Impossible. Star Wars Episode Nine is, of course, being directed by J.J. Abrams after being, um, I don't want to say taken away from Colin Trevorrow, but after some creative differences between Trevorrow and Disney, it's been given back to J.J. Abrams. He's going to be picking up the last one. Um, definitely interested to see where the movie goes, not only because of Carrie Russell, because, of course, that's the most engaging part of Star Wars, but uh, because it's, it's swinging back over to J.J. after... Episode Swing, 8. Swinging away. Which had gone to Rian Johnson, which was fairly different from what J.J. wanted to do. So I'll, I'm curious to see how he picks up the pieces. You, um, you know what I'm looking forward to is that a lot of the story elements he set up poorly, I might add, have been <laughs> have been done away with. You know, by Ryan Johnson. I, I thought they were set up okay. They, were, they weren't that bad. But the, what they've been done away with now. So things right. like it's true. Snoke, not spoilers, Snoke is now dead. Phasma mm -hmm. is presumed dead. Luke's lightsaber is gone. So he's going to have to actually finish the story and not just create vague mystery boxes for other people to solve. He's going to have to close things up. Real talk for a second. You think Phasma's actually dead? No way, right? No, I, I hope so. It's going to be cheap if they bring her back. I think it's going to be cheap if they killed her. Like, that's it? Really? She had chrome armor. She had Gwendolyn Christie. She was signed for three films. Like, how could that be it? But I I, I, I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, the next story we have, totally just closed the app. Andy, you mind reading that for me? I, I closed that tab. <laughs> I apologize. Yes. Um, I may have just done the same thing. Nice. <laughs> uh, artificial intelligence could one day determine which films get made. Yeah, uh, this was regarding Sony Pictures' new technology, which is called ScriptBound? Yeah, it's some sort of script analysis software. Yeah, out of a company out of Belgium and their whole thing. And again, still don't have the tab open, going off the top of my head. Their whole thing is using artificial intelligence to determine uh, which scripts, or as they say, stories, 
will be the most productive in society? Which ones will entertain the most? Which ones really at the end of the day will make the most money? And right. Sony which ones Pictures are, is all about this. Right. Which ones are going to be financially um, viable mm-hmm. in the future? Um, I don't really think, like the idea of letting machines decide our art. Um, now, it did. the article did say that the machine picked winners three times more than their human counterparts. Which isn't surprising because machines tend to do a lot of stuff better than than us men uh, before they enslave us, anyways. <laughs> uh, but there's a lot of, of unknowns. It, it's hard to kind of digitize art, and you know, there's m- movies that succeed for no reason and that look that they should bomb, and then there's things that look great or in, or things that on paper that should do well and are total disasters in box office bombs. So you never really know. And I worry about things like, you know, Blade Runner 2049 probably would not have been made by this because of this, if it depended on this software. But I'm so glad it exists, despite the fact that it was a huge box office bomb. It's an incredible movie. Right. I, I, I'm really... This this could probably be its own Death of Cinema segment. It might be in the future, depending on developments around this story. Uh, script book is the name of the software. Um, th- this stuff, like, I, it, it's weird, man. I'm okay with, like, a Roomba taking pictures of my house and putting them on the internet. <laughs> I'm fine with having a digital footprint where Facebook tracks me down and, and Google knows everything about me. Where where that line is drawn for me is is consumption of genuine entertainment because cinema is 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 the way we tell stories in an age where we don't sit around campfires anymore. Like, it is it is something deeper. It is it is inherently human. And the idea of a computer rolling in and being like, "Here's what'll work and here's what won't," frustrates me because there's I mean there's how could it possibly know what will and won't actually work? I feel like a computer would think the emoji movie might work based on how many people use emojis in the world. And like, that's very short-sighted. And to be fair, out of out of what was identified here, the, apparently this script book software retroactively went back and identified 22 out of 32 of Sony, Sony Pictures' last movies as failures, which is pretty good. Also worth noting, 62 movies that Sony put out last year, 32 of those were bombs. Right. So it's just Sony Pictures. Um, it's like, it's not perfect, clearly. Clearly, it's not perfect. And the idea that Sony might be looking at this as an opportunity to duck out of things like uh, focus groups or test screenings or market research in the hopes that a computer will just determine it all spooks me. Yeah. E- even if Sony is Sony Pictures is not doing great and, and people kind of, you know, I like to think they're, they're laughed at in, in bigger circles. Um, I don't like the idea of a big company being like, we're just, we're automating it all. We're, we're not going to take, we're not going to consider what people think. It's just what the computer thinks will work. And that's that like that, that, that sucks. Yeah. I think that it could be helpful in conjunction with human script writers and script readers. Um, it's an additional tool, another way to measure the script, but yeah, you you definitely don't want to take the human component out of it. I, I don't think. And it's got to be frustrating for pe- for 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 scriptwriters in Hollywood because I mean scriptwriters so often they'll write a script that's half decent and a studio will scoop it up just because they don't want anybody else to have the idea and stick it in a file cabinet and never make it right um, and then they can you know they can claim ownership if anything ever comes out like it script writing in Hollywood's tough and the whole thing with this script book software is you stick a PDF of your screenplay into the system and in five minutes it can roll out a detailed analysis 
of predicting the rating of the film, uh, its characters, the protagonists and antagonists, emotions of each character, target audiences, including gender and race, which is intriguing, and most importantly, makes box office predictions. It's spooky stuff. It really is. <laughs> it like, is. I, yeah, I, I don't want to be one of those tinfoil hat, you know, folks who say Is this that, where the self-awareness comes from? Right. They're, 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 machines are taking over the world. But, like, man, when it comes to consumption of entertainment, this is why I'm, I'm, I'm oddly anti-Disney. Because I, I don't like the idea of one company or one entity being able to own and determine everything that we consume. Like, that is inherently a bad idea for a society. And that's probably for a deeper podcast. And maybe I should leave it there. But, like... I don't know, man. This stuff freaks me out. <laughs> I don't like it. Yeah, it is. So, yeah. It is It is a little spooky. Um, it's, it is interesting, though. It brings up points that, you know, uh, the software can kind of tell if, uh, you know, if there's a gender imbalance or if there's not enough diversity in, in the script. So there are some positive things that it could identify. But it, like I said, you still really need the the human component in there, I think. To be fair, uh, it's not all perfect. The the end of this article has a little bit of, um, you know, a, a blanket to, to hide under uh, when you if if you feel like I do. Um, according to this, when asked to retroactively assess the box office potential of La La Land, you remember that movie? Mm-hmm. Scriptbook predicted the film would gross fifty nine million, and whereas in fact it did more than a hundred million in business, but. The software still greenlit the project because of its low uh, production budget. So I don't know what that means. Um, maybe that's a good thing for indies. I don't know. Um, but it's it, it's 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 weird and it, it possibly and it's it's always hard to predict what people will want and what people right. will like. How could something like Scriptbook possibly interpret a script for something like Baby Driver? Like there's it just you can't do it. Like yeah. for for new ideas or something like. Yeah, Denis Villeneuve's Blade Runner 2049. I feel like there's no way it would it would greenlight it. it. It would say, no, that's a horrible idea. And because the movie didn't do so well in retrospect, maybe that's a good thing. But when it comes to something like Blade Runner, I can't help but feel differently. Like, I look at a movie like Disobedience, right? Right. But so far, Disobedience is arguably my favorite film of this year. No way that movie would have gotten greenlit. There's no. no way. I know it's got a low production budget, but like, you know, who would go see that movie? It's an art house flick. And like, I, I adored that movie. Um, so I don't know. Like I, I, uh, or things like, uh, you were never really here. Yeah. I don't know. It's, 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 I, I, I feel like it would, it would do a good job of hitting like the middle of the road. Sure. But it's going to have trouble in, in the extremes. The, the one other relation I have to this before we, we have to move on. My God, I've spent way too long in this. Um, radio. Terrestrial radio. Uh, most terrestrial radio is, is is no longer... Songs aren't picked by hand, right? They're, they're run through a computer program. I forget the name of it. It's a nationally used service. Um, and this computer just picks based on trends. Like, here's your top 40... You know, here's the top 40 tracks. Here's what people kind of like. Here's what's popular on iTunes. Here's what we're running for 24 hours, and they'll have somebody go through and they'll pick out pick out certain little things if they want. But for the most part, program directors who probably don't make enough money because that's the way the industry went, don't really look at it. They just roll with whatever premium choice, I think is the name of it, picked, uh, and that's the songs you hear on the radio. And nobody listens to the radio anymore. Right. So I don't know, point. man. Like it's it's worth considering. Like when you let a computer start picking this stuff out, like you you genuinely lose something. And when it comes to cinema. 
I don't think that's uh, I don't think that's where we're at yet. It's not bold. It's certainly not bold. <laughs> and with that, we should probably move on to our first film of the evening, the documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor? The greatest thing that we can do is to help somebody know that they're loved and capable of loving. Won't You Be My Neighbor is, I'm so glad I got to take the summary for this, because it's a documentary, it's super easy. Uh, it is the story of uh, Fred Rogers, a, a uh, initially young man, I should say, Presbyterian, who was aiming to be a minister, graduated college and realized, you know, I think I might want to get into this television thing instead. Right when it started to become a thing, he picked up a local job at his uh, uh, local um broadcasting public station yeah public yeah. television broadcasting station in Pittsburgh and he started this little children's show that went on to become Mr. Rogers Neighborhood the show most of us i would imagine know and love the documentary covers his life some of the hot button issues he covered on his show and really just kind of digs into his ideology of who he was and what he wanted to do for children everywhere and i think that's a pretty good summary um from that we should start to dig into the movie. Andy, what did you think of Won't You Be My Neighbor? Um, I really loved it. It was very moving, very powerful, just so positive and uplifting. And, you know, we're, we're in some kind of uh, tough times, and it, it's great to see a piece of cinema that's about such a positive person and someone who was really focused on not just bringing positivity into the world, but specifically towards children and you know, because he was saying when TV first came on, it was either geared towards adults or it was all this really terrible programming for children, like, you know, people getting hit in the face with pies and things that didn't teach them anything and was just kind of a babysitter there. And he really wanted to connect with children, really wanted to understand them, to teach them things, to teach them it's okay to feel certain ways and to understand and vocalize their feelings. And it's just really powerful. And I, I, I didn't realize the show was on as long as it was. Like, I didn't. It starts in 1967, 68. And that's just an incredibly long time. And that's right on the ground floor of when TV was getting its start. Yeah. Um, I, I, yeah, this movie was really good. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's phenomenally heartwarming, especially to anybody who can look back on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood uh, with any kind of lens of nostalgia, which considering its its run length, almost everybody who goes and see this documentary will. Um, you know, you, you grow up, and, and, and the problems of childhood seem to slip away, and, and the problems of adulthood very quickly set in, and, and Mr. Rogers was heartwarming because he was an adult who genuinely seemed to understand where kids were when a lot of us forget that he kind of hung on to that child at heart mentality and and um he 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 reminds us even in death even even past when his show has come and gone even when he's not around anymore that like kids the, the way kids feel is just as important as the rest of us and and not only is it important to not forget how they feel but it's important not forget how we felt and maybe how we feel, really, the, the, deep, the deeper part of us, right? This part of us that feels gone. Um, it, it's really, really incredible stuff. And the documentary does a great job of getting that emotion across. Yeah, he. It was, to me, it was really incredible just that the topics that he would pick. I mean, I watched the show a little bit um, when I was growing up as well uh, through, the, through the early 90s. Um, but, I mean, his first show was about the Vietnam War. Or there's um, there's another episode where um, one of the puppet characters asks, 
well, what does assassination mean? Yeah. Just and there's a couple of these parts of just like really, really heavy. I mean, that, that's a heavy adult conversation. And you know, he was pointing out that these are things that kids are hearing and that they need to understand what they are in in terms that they can understand. And you know, that I just think that's a really powerful thing that he did to make sure that the children are understanding what's happening in the world, that things are still okay, even though that scary things might be happening. Right. It, it, he's he's an incredible subject for a documentary. It's it's surprising there hasn't been one sooner. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like he's he's so great for it and especially considering where we seem to find ourselves societally. Yeah, where where we seem to have driven ourselves and the movie doesn't do doesn't too, do too much grandstanding and it could have. It very easily could have pointed fingers and said this is the way things are now. This is how people are, but it doesn't do that. It focuses on the man and it focuses on kind of his message and trying to capture that. And it does that through a really, really clever blend of archival footage that frankly is fairly low quality, but it yeah. seems to work. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts about that. Um, yeah. I mean, the first footage you see is from the 60s. It's black and white. It's super grainy. Super grainy. You can. It's kind of hard to tell what's, what's going on, but you see, you know, the evolution of a show and the evolution of TV happen. And... You know, he touches not only on these important issues, but current events of the day. One of the, and I mean, people were like crying every 10 minutes <laughs> in the theater I was in. Um, and to, uh, the part that get that really got to me was the scenes about the Challenger um, yeah. explosion. Because the, I mean, they have footage of, of uh, Krista McAuliffe like practicing the uh, lesson she was going to teach from space from the shuttle and it's just it's so heartbreaking and for him to then i mean every from what i understand everyone was watching tv and saw this happen so like you you have kids that are young that have no idea what oh man what yeah just they, happened. Had, they had footage of kids in in schools like getting together in the gymnasium to like gather around the little tv the school had and watch it like it was crazy yeah and so for him to address these this incredible tragedy and to bring it down to a level that children and i mean it helps adults as well that's so that's his whole thing like talking about he kind of he made it okay it's okay to talk about your feelings it's okay to feel a certain way yeah i do want to get to like moments that had really emotional impact in, in, in a minute i like we mm -hmm. should probably do that towards the end because okay, okay. I, I yeah I, I do want to get to those and i think everybody who saw this movie definitely has those i'm curious to see if yours line up with ours so stay tuned but um i i was really impressed by and this is something I, I initially when I saw the movie, I, I wanted to fault it for. And I, I think the further I get away from it, the more I don't mind it. The way the movie jumps through time because it doesn't stay in one place. It, it, it starts out with a bit of a narrative and it kind of starts to walk you through the beginning. It opens with a, a very flat, um, <laughs> a flat color with, with font on it. It just says Fred Jones and his life. And uh, then, then it'll have, you know, the Vietnam War for show and like year and, and then, you know. The year he talked about this, and then a year. But it's it, like as far as interview coverage goes, it doesn't stick to any like relegated time. It'll have an interview with him when he's very young and sit in front of a piano in black and white, and then it'll, it'll cut to an interview of him when he's seventy. Like, and it jumps around that way. It doesn't specifically stay towards any one. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't stay on a timeline. I think it's important to do that because it doesn't uh, relegate itself by time it relegates itself by message and by ideology you know why did he why did he think this way why did he feel this way how did he feel about politics how did he present his message of presbyterian christianity was it 
as a minister or was it as a teacher? You know, how did he feel about race? Like, and it does, it does a clever job of kind of subverting your expectations in that way because it isn't a linear is isn't necessarily, I should say, a linear documentary. Right. Yeah. He jumps back and forth. You you get interviews from the cast, um, interv- and they're interviewing them today in the present, looking back on 20, 30 years uh, with Fred Rogers. And, and you're right. You see the evolution of, you know, even though he talked about how bad he thought TV was for, for kids, it only got worse. Mm-hmm. Like when they're in the 80s section and he's showing like, you know, he's having to compete with like Transformers and G.I. Joe and all <laughs> this like, Stimpy. yeah, like it was cartoon violence. And it's just, you know, some of it's just so absurd. And it was meant to, you know, simply occupy kids yeah, and for it's, time. It's wild because like I, you know, you, you, of course, watching this movie can't help but think back on your own childhood. You can, I mean, you can't yeah. like it covers such a wide range of time because that's how long the show ran. That like yeah, it'll it'll cut to an ad for GI Joe or like, a, you know, a, a kid uh, an ad for a toy gun or something, and you're like, gosh, I remember seeing things like that. Like that makes sense to me, and like it it does these clever, it, it like considers this 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 amount of time and the amount of programming that was available then and the things kids saw, and that's what it shows you in juxtaposition to him and his message. And it's fairly effective. It also has interviews with crew members, which I thought was cool. People who worked in the studio. He's got his wife uh, in there. People who were also on the show, like Francois Clemens, the black police officer. Um, Which is really intriguing to kind of get opinions from people who knew him so closely. And kind of see if, if he really was who he claimed to be on television. Yeah, to me that was a really heartwarming and uplifting part. Was that he really was the way he was on screen, off screen. Um, that he was that nice. He was that, you know, genuous and just loving and cared about the people he worked with as much as the children he was trying to reach. I did enjoy the way they highlighted his characters because I didn't know this back in the day because I was a kid when I watched the show. I didn't know that he did a lot of the voices for the animals in right. Believe. I, I didn't know that. And, and, and I like that they explained not only kind of how make-believe was viewed by him, but why he was never in it, why it was always actors, not him, and that he did the voices. And and I liked how it kind of drew analogies to him and the character of Daniel Tiger and how they felt like that's who he really was. And then as he got older, he didn't seem so much that way anymore. And that is kind of wrapped up in this series of animations that lead a bit of a narrative through the movie about uh, Daniel Tiger um, being kind of a, an, an, you know what I'm talking about, an mm-hmm. animated person. And like he... It's got these little hand-drawn animations where he does things. And I wasn't super drawn in by those because to me that felt a little, and this is this is where I, I, I offer a criticism of this movie. And this is where <laughs> I feel like I'm going to get roasted, but hear me out. It felt a little tacked on. It felt a little bit like you guys went out and, and they shot all these interviews with these folks and they had all this footage and they were like, we don't really have a good way to tie it together. And so it kind of just loosely does that with these animations of Daniel Tiger, which worked. Um, but I, I can't say that they were the most effective way to tell that story. Yeah. Yeah. You're n- sorry. I couldn't remember what you, what you exactly meant. And right. now it's coming to me. It's got, yeah, you um, yeah. I thought that was a strange choice too. Yeah. Um, these kind of animated interludes between things. Um, yeah. I think that could have been done differently. It just, I mean, it's not, <laughs> So it's, much not that, bad. it's not so just, much that it yeah, didn't work. It stood out. I yeah. completely forgot about it. That's how okay, well, fair. That's that. how un- ineffective it was, yeah. I guess. Um, 
a couple things I wanted to mention is that I had no idea how much he did on the show. I just thought he was the host, but he was writing, he was hosting, he yeah, was writing, no writing and composing music. I didn't know he was a musician or you know, he plays piano and he sings. Yeah. Um, so I had no idea about that. So that, that was pretty fun to learn. I did enjoy the look into his family, which there isn't much of, to be fair. It, it, it talks to his two sons and his wife, um, but for the most part, it focuses on him and who he was. And in a way... They kind of they keep him elevated. They don't they don't bring him down to earth. They're not like, oh yeah, he was he was my dad. This one time he did this goofy thing. No, like they keep him on that pedestal. They keep him in that ivory tower where we all see him, and it's effective because if if they if they brought him down, it would it would almost it would almost dehumanize him in a way because he yeah. felt so human. Um, it would make him normal, you know, and like. They they mention you know it's got to be weird to have a dad who's who's like the second coming of Christ and, and, <laughs> yeah um, but it's it's true like it does make you wonder how these kids you know got along when their dad was freaking Mister Rogers and it turned out yeah they 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 do that by they get that point across by harping on again that he was exactly who he claimed to be on the show like he, he was that man and that's really heartwarming yeah one uh, last thing that just came to mind sure. was that. Uh, you know, he didn't just do it all himself when he was doing the show. Like he consulted child psychologists and and um, education specialists on how he should say things and frame frame things. How he should uh, kind of adjust or approach these t- tough subjects. Yeah. Um. And I, and I thought that was very just important that you you know if you're doing something like this, you're working with professionals, people who know. Though this is how you talk to kids. This is how you frame things. These are the, the ways they learn. This is the ways they don't learn. As opposed to, I mean, maybe they're doing that for G.I. Joe and Transformers as well. Yeah. But maybe for, for all the wrong reasons. Yeah. Um, I, and I enjoyed the way they, they brought him. They, did, they didn't shy away from keeping him on an adult stage. They had a bit from him when he was in a Senate committee trying to convince the Senate to keep funding for PBS they had him talking about 9-11 at one point. Like, they they did understand that, like, he was an adult and he had adult problems. They even talked about his, his other show, which was Good Friends, Good Neighbors, I think, yeah. or something like that. Yeah, which was supposed to be slanted towards adults, which really didn't work. But I, I appreciated the way they they just they, – they made him feel like a man. They made him feel like a person, and they made him – a guy who who somehow nowadays doesn't seem entirely possible. They made him seem completely real and valid, and like that was that was really cool. I, I did want to ask before we wrap things up. Yeah, any 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 really emotional, hard hitting moments for you? Any moments that you felt? Like uh, several. Uh, like I said, uh, the Challenger one uh, for sure. Um, some of the stuff earlier when he's he's um, doing the pool thing with the local police officer who's black. And yeah. he specifically did that after an, an incident in the 60s where a hotel owner poured, like, cleaning chemicals while a b- black family was in a pool. Yeah. So, you know, he's making a statement in a more subtle way saying, "I'm that's not acceptable. You can have people of different colors and backgrounds in the same pool. My – the moments that stood out to me the most uh, with the most, the most punch, um, not to say that those weren't valid, totally – uh, there were any moments they modernized him, and what I mean is there was a bit, um, you know, at the beginning of the movie, the first act, really, of a documentary, if not, if a documentary has acts, um, talked about, uh, you know, there's a lot of old archival footage, like we said, the movie opens with black and white footage, and, and it's a lot of, like, 
kids in the 50s you know sitting in a studio and like looking at clowns and like it's it's not it's not reality as we know it it's 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 a different kind of reality for children but that wasn't you know that wasn't my childhood that wasn't your childhood that's not what we knew and and then they do that for a little while and then about 20 or 30 minutes into the movie there's this little sequence they have where they have modern day kids that you just like pull off the street sitting in front of the camera looking at a glass uh, lens in front of the camera where they projected old episodes of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. So you get through this projection of the show like a modern look at kids today watching it and, and they look just as like, and it's a montage, it's a bunch of different kids at different ages and races and and uh, they, you just get these like super genuine reactions and like bringing him to today was great like that that mm -hmm. felt like something because it was like this stuff still works like it, it's yeah tried and true and, and i enjoy that the other one that really got me that i recall because because i saw this early in the week um god there's this bit with this woman he's it doesn't even it doesn't even really give context to where he's at but he's outside somewhere and there's a crowd of people this woman comes up to him and she's like hi mr rogers like i just want to thank you because i love your stuff and like i i used to watch your show when i was a kid and you got me through pre-k because I had a disability and she starts to tear up and she's like, I, I couldn't go out and I couldn't talk to anybody and you were everything. And she's like crying. And I'm like, Oh my God, <laughs> like this is tearing me apart. Like it was so sweet and like, just so like wholesome and heartwarming. Like it was killer. Um, man, really enjoyed this movie. Um, any other thoughts before we wrap up? I had one before we finish, but yeah. Um, you. I just want to mention one other moment. Um, like I said, one of the, episodes he meant talks about assassination and that was specifically a, about the assassination of Bobby Kennedy um, and just the clip they played you know he's just playing with the puppet and the puppet they're blowing up a balloon you know they're kind of playing then all of a sudden the puppet just said what's assassination yeah and like that's ex so much how kids are they'll just come totally. like, yep. come out of the blue with like <laughs> some hard-hitting really deep question and you're like uh, I wasn't prepared for this yeah you know so but it was great to see that kind of question brought up and then handled in like an appropriate way to try as best explain what that is sure without you know scaring or <laughs> terrifying the child in a time when nobody was doing that yeah when nobody would get on television and do something like that he was this little studio in pittsburgh <laughs> yeah <laughs> he's putting out mr rogers neighborhood and covering like hard-hitting topics and that's wild um, the one other thing I wanted to mention about about this movie, and and I think this is the first documentary we've covered on this show, right? No, no really? <laughs> What's no. the first documentary? We what did? was the other one we we did? I don't uh, know. There was an HBO one. Uh, Andre the Giant. Andre the Giant. Yes, of course. Andre the Giant. Also great. Real quick, if you didn't hear that episode, um, the the one other thing I wanted to note here and that I thought was really fascinating. This I had a really unique screening. Um, with this documentary because it's been out for a few weeks and I went to see it at a, a big mainstream theater when normally now it's only really playing in art house theaters. I saw it at 30 screen Cineplex over by me um, with 30 screens. They need something to run. So they were running it. And, and I went and saw it on a holiday, uh, the 4th of July. Um, and I figured it's a holiday, so it might be a little busy, but I tried to do what I always do and tried to go to the earliest screening in the day. Cause I, I figured that's the slowest time. Yeah. Um, and I got there, it wasn't reserved seats, it was a small theater, so there were no reserved seats, it was open seating, and they, uh, I bought my tickets just a few minutes before showtime, and the guy told me uh, that, hey, uh, this screening is real full, you might be sitting in the front row, which would surprise me, naturally, like, really? 
really? I know it's a holiday, but still. And I got in there, and it was it was almost a full house, wow. like just short of just a few seats in the theater, chock full. And again, it's a holiday. Maybe that's maybe that's just by chance, but. It's not often I go see a documentary in a theater and it's almost full. Like that almost, I, I don't think that's ever happened. It was probably the, the most full I've ever seen a documentary theater be, especially this far from release. And what was particularly fascinating about this documentary is when the movie ended, it got applause, like ovation from the whole theater and nobody left. The mm-hmm. place was silent during the credits. And once the lights went up after the credits, that's when everybody left. And like, I've never seen a relatively mainstream audience almost fill up a theater this far from release clap when the clap when it's over and nobody leaves for the credits like everybody stuck around short of like a marvel movie yeah um incredible like it, it documentaries do not do that to people and like there's something particularly special about this one and i think if you've seen it you'll understand what that is andy would you recommend uh won't you be my neighbor oh absolutely and my my theater was completely full uh, yeah. as well yeah, um, it's wild. It, yeah, it's 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 so warm, <sighs> it's so uplifting, and it's so positive in a time when there's not a whole lot of positivity uh, the, these days. And it's um, it almost feels like it leaves a void because there's not a lot of people like Fred Fred Rogers around. Yeah, it, it, it's um, it's an incredible movie. I, I would recommend it as well. It is totally worth your time. It is 94 minutes, and I wish it was longer. It's it's heartwarming in a way that like movies don't seem to warm our hearts anymore. I mean, we, we live in an age of, of superhero movies. We live in an age of times when our, our ideal fantasy is somebody swooping in and saving the day. And like watching a movie like won't you be my neighbor reminds us that like, not only do, are there people like that in our lives, but like it is entirely possible for any one of us to be that way. Um, if we're only willing to work for it and, and try. So that's, Will you be my neighbor, I guess. Any other thoughts? Um, uh, no, we do have some correspondence. Oh, God, you're right. Yeah, I'm so sorry. I meant to get <laughs> to this and totally didn't. Yes, we have correspondence from from the show, uh, which I'm super excited to read as soon as I get it pulled up. Yes, uh, Dear Zach and Dr. Draper. This comes from Facebook? Uh, email. Email from... Allison. Allison, Allison in Fort Worth. Got it in Fort Worth. Yes. Dear Zach and Dr. Dr. Draper, I grew up watching Mr. Rogers, so of course this film brought back a lot of memories. It was really interesting to get a full biography of the man and to find out the history of his TV show. I'd always heard he was an ordained Presbyterian minister, but I never knew until now that he never actually served as a minister in the traditional sense. His TV show was actually, sorry, skipped a line there. His TV show was his pulpit, and the kids who watched the show were his congregation. I think I cried about every 20 minutes, or even more often, while watching this film. His kindness was so incredible, his love for his kids, and his creativity. For me, the most powerful scene of the movie was at the very end, when all the interviewees just sat there on film in silence, thinking about someone who had made a positive difference in their life, an activity I think Mr. Rogers recommended. I got the feeling that the entire audience in the movie theater was doing the same thing as, she fo- as, as, as the folks on screen. It was just this beautiful shared moment of gratitude and love. Gosh, now I think I want to go see it again. Thank, thanks for y'all's show. Can't wait to hear what y'all think about this one. Smiley face. <laughs> Allison, thank you so much. That was very sweet. Um, yes. Agreed. Uh, I, I can't believe we forgot to mention that bit. Yeah, there's this really sweet moment at the end that um, you, should, you should check out if you go see it. So, yeah. That's Won't You Be My Neighbor. Thanks for writing, Allison. For those of us, for those of you who want to get involved with the show, email us at mail at offscriptfilmreview.com. Uh, our next segment, going to be a good one. Uh, <laughs> this is 
Uh, you want to say it? It's time for the death of cinema. We are going to be looking at a news story this week, something that caught a little bit of uh, backlash as a fair assessment on yes. the internet. Um, Specifically about Scarlett Johansson. Yes. Uh, I'm just going to rattle a headline off. Scarlett Johansson casting, Scarlett Johansson's casting as a transgender man draws backlash. So it's a big one. Yeah. yeah. So she's been cast in a new film called Rub and Tug. Uh <laughs> which is exactly what you think it's it's about um and she plays uh, the real life story of dante tex gill who ran a string of massage parlors that were fronts for prostitution dens in the 70s and 80s um and dante gill was a transgender man and so there's a lot of backlash that <clears throat> that scarlett johansson is playing this role and that it's not been given to or auditioned for a transgender person to play Right. Um, that is primarily where people are getting upset because they feel like the casting decisions like this one take opportunities away from members of already marginalized communities. Exactly. So why do, why do we want to talk about this on, on off script? Um, oh, I think it's a good place to start. <laughs> why, why do we feel like we're going to dip into this? Um, uh, well, we're the home of bold cinema. Sure. And I mean, this is a hot controversial uh, topic. And this isn't the first time that uh, Scar Joe has done this sort of thing or been cast in this sort of role. Last year, uh, she was cast in Ghost in the Shell, which is primarily, uh, it's written for, or the original manga is an Asian woman, uh, plays the major, and she is obviously not Asian. Um, and so there was lots of backlash last year for her whitewashing or for kind of taking that role from a, an Asian person. Sure. I, I think... Man, <laughs> this is well, a tough one. Yeah, so I'll go ahead and start. And, okay, as, and the first thing I'll say is that we definitely, when we have the opportunity to have a transgender role like this, it definitely needs to go to that type of person, and they need to be, um, they need to be auditioned. They need to have the opportunity. I think so many roles, especially for stars like Scarlett Johansson and lots of other big people, they don't ever have to audition for anything. They did the, you know, a production team comes together and says, okay, we want this writer, this actor, this director, when uh, this is a project, we want ScarJo to do it. And that's it. And there's no thought to other people who might fill the role more appropriately. Mm -hmm. So th that definitely, I think, needs to, to change. And there needs to be opportunities for these more marginalized um, right. communities. Let's, let's start with the basics before we get too far in the weeds here. Um, and again, if you have any thoughts, email <laughs> us at mail at offscriptfilmreview.com. Happy to read it on the show. Like I, I, And I think that's the best place to start here. A conversation. Yes. I think a conversation about this stuff is at the very least what we should be doing. We should talk about this because it's important. I think if anybody feels under marginalized by an industry like Hollywood, where the idea is that the American dream and anything is possible, yeah. If you feel that way, we should talk about it. If you think that somebody in, in, in a community, whether it be deaf people or blind people or trans people, anybody feels like they, they, they don't have proper representation in, in a place where they totally should, like Hollywood, yeah, you should talk about it. And I think it's worth getting on the internet and saying something that you feel like, hey, not enough people are cast in roles like this. And when an opportunity comes up, I think they should at the very least be considered. 
Totally. We should absolutely be considering transgender people for transgender roles. That makes sense. You would consider a woman for a female role. You would consider a male for a male role. You would consider a transgender person for a transgender role. I agree. So, <laughs> I think that... Does that cover my bases? Do I, do I feel <laughs> yes, like I'm okay? Okay, keep go going. Uh, so, let's talk about why Scarlett Johansson got cast in this role. Okay. Um, the main reason for that is business above all um money the film business is exactly that it's a business they are in they want to make money making money part of that is having a star scarlett johansson is a scar not scar star mm-hmm. um and so i i think that's one thing that people need to remember that businesses do what's in their best interest not in what's in the best interest of the community or other things they're not in the business of being progressive sometimes they are and you know sometimes hollywood is accused of being super left and super progressive um but yeah they're they're still in the business of making money and that's um what they do and that and that and i need to front uh disclaimer like that doesn't make any of this okay it doesn't make it right it doesn't justify these decisions but it's why they happen yeah it's what you know someone said hey we want scarjo for this role she wants an oscar this is you know, hopefully we can, it'll be, it's a, it sounds like an Oscar Beatty kind of role. Sure. Let's put her in. I know it's not the crazy, it wouldn't have, it wouldn't be the craziest thing that the celebrity complex of our great United States could put out in the last few years. But that being said, if Scarlett Johansson wins an Oscar for a trans role in a movie called Rub and Tug, <laughs> <laughs> that will be incredible. Um, Yes, uh, some people have looked at her previous work, uh, specifically Ghost in the Shell, out of DreamWorks and Paramount Pictures, I think, um, in 2017, and cited that as an issue. Like, well, she wasn't supposed to play a woman who is inherently Asian, and she was in that, and that's whitewashing, and now there's this. It does seem unfortunate that this has been the Scarlett Johansson thing, and I'll be honest, um, that is strange that the same actress has run into two of these these incidents in in, in, in years past. There, there is, is okay. Is there <laughs> better than saying there is? Right, posing the question, not forming an opinion. Is there a case to be made that she is an actor doing her job, acting like somebody she isn't? Right. Is there a case to be made to say that? Uh, Ryan Gosling in Lars and the Real Girl acting like a depressed man who is in love with a inanimate sex doll is... Is that what that movie's about? Yes, is a okay. stretch for uh, him not being that person and that they should have cast somebody who's actually in love with a sex doll. Maybe, but like being an actor, you are acting like somebody you're not. That's what an actor is. If you want to look at immediate references to other roles like this one, you can look at Jeffrey Tambor in Transparent, the the AMC Amazon Prime series. You can look at Jared Leto in Dallas Buyers Club, which he won an Oscar for. Right. You can look at Felicity Huffman, who is in the 2005 film Transamerica, who was nominated for an Oscar in that movie, and she is not trans. It's worth noting, all right, that like these roles are certainly not easy to undertake, and they are rewarded when they are done well, which might be to the detriment of your argument. I understand that. Mm-hmm. But it's also with the understanding that these are these are not easy roles. They're not giving them out to anybody. All right, you got to have experience. You have to be good at what you do. 
And somebody along the way looked at Scarlett Johansson and thought, I think she can handle this. At least I hope that's what happened. Right. I hope this wasn't a case of which. Okay, you know what? Let me let me pass the ball here. All right, you you take this for a okay. minute and run. Let <laughs> Sorry, me let me um, gather my thoughts. Sorry, I, um, good lord. No, um, we and we do have some correspondence. Uh, we're going to read here about mm. this subject with some different. We do um, actually, yeah. Believe it or not, yeah. It's it's a it's a tricky issue because I've heard the same um, complaints about. Uh, certain disabled roles uh, Sally Hawkins who won the Oscar for Shape of Water played a, a deaf person and people were upset that it wasn't given to an actual uh, deaf actor um, I've heard a similar thing I mean something as silly as Logan Lucky and um, Adam Driver playing a man with one arm or why didn't they get a man with one, one arm um, and so I mean it's a sti sticky situation like I said on one side you want you want to give people with disabilities or other kind of marginalized communities, you want to give them opportunities. At the same time, you also want stars, you want names, you want actors that, and you want good actors, right. you know, in, in shape of water, you could easily find someone or not easy. You could find a deaf actor, but maybe they're not as good as Sally Hawkins. Mm -hmm. So that is only part of the role. Right. And, and part of the reason I think it's important to be vocal about this stuff is because of look, you can look at a movie like a quiet place which cast a deaf actress in the, a deaf child actress in in one of the titular roles which is not an easy role to fill and could very easily have been snagged by just a hearing child actress um the the industry is shifting the needle is moving but it moves slowly all right i don't want to say something like blood alone moves the wheels of history okay. <laughs> but yeah thank you um but it takes time, all right? And and, and speaking out and, and saying things on social media is important. But it's also important to have a nuanced argument, right? And and understand why they made this move and then how to get over the line to get to what we want. I think our correspondent does a great job of actually kind of filling that void. Both of these are fantastic. I'm yeah, actually really why, don't you, why don't you go ahead and read Let's, the first one? Uh, the first one, uh, casting, this is from Courtney M, and we'll offer some details on her in a second. Casting Scarlett Johansson as a transgender person in the film Rub and Tug, sorry, poses, poses a lot of issues. For one, casting a straight female identifying character like Johansson takes away from the few and far between roles for people who identify as trans non-binary. Casting directors, the director or producers of Rub and Tug should have reached out to people identifying as trans and had them audition. If they only cast her because of her appeal or profit potential, I question the integrity of the project. As actors, we want to tell all different types of stories, but we also need to let the right people tell the right stories. So in this case, let a trans person tell a trans story, not because a straight female identifying actor can't do it, but because a trans identifying person deserves to tell it. This is from local Dallas actor Courtney M., who you can see in the Classics Theater Project's production of The Cherry Orchard at the Trinity River Arts Center Thursday through Saturday at 8 p.m. We should have gotten her on the show. I didn't know she was, like, super local. <laughs> yeah. Next time. Eventually. Courtney M., thanks a lot. Yeah, we'll, look, we'll, we'll keep an eye out. Yeah, no, um, I, I think she's she kind of uh, nails this where it, it's not it's not about you need, you need ScarJo because only ScarJo can do it. It's – sorry, what did she say at the end? Um – it's because a trans-identifying person deserves to tell it. Right. If they Again, only cast her because of her appeal, profit, potential, I question the integrity. Yes. Right. It, it's about someone offering an opportunity that hasn't existed to someone. Right. And one of the things I've seen is, you know, uh, from uh, – this is in the New York Times article, said trans women aren't in the same room as the rest of the roles that ScarJo gets or the other kind of 
you know, to play straight female leads. Yeah. You know, so it's a, it's a one-sided issue if you say, oh, you can, you're allowed, it's okay if you play a trans person, but it's not okay for a trans person to play a straight female. Right. So there, that's, that's a huge kind of imbalance. Right. And that, and that's where the, the, the darker half of my former argument, I think falls apart because I, I think I'm being opt. Okay. I don't know if I'm being optimistic <laughs> when I say, uh, I hope they cast her because of her acting ability and because of her chops. Like, right. Because the other part of that is they could have just cast her because she's a big name. And yeah. because this will get press and people will look at it. Right, for all the business reasons. For all the business reasons. And, like, I, I, I can only hope that's not what it is. But the fact is, when it comes to a business, you're right. The producers of Rub and Tug stand to make a lot more money if a big-name actress is heading the movie and not somebody we've never heard of. Right. And Even if they're better to fill the role. Right, and that definitely need, needs to change. And it, it, it takes time. And uh, before, we have some more correspondence, but before we get to that, I have a question. Yeah. Why doesn't she turn down the role? <laughs> I don't know. Because I do I do think it is on the producers and directors and casting uh, yeah. agents to diversify the mm-hmm. options and of who they might get. But she could also say, no, I'm not doing that project. You know... <laughs> this is a tough question. I mean... I don't oh. know. I like I because because I that's. I mean, she's she's. It's a job. She's working. I, I don't. I don't. I do not want to deduce this down to some kind of argument. Like that's that's peace you got to make with your god. But like that's exactly how I feel. I'm like yeah. I would not have taken that. That that is something to me. I'd be like no. That. Yeah. I mean, that that's, that's an unfair question. We, we can't get in in right. uh, in, like, I in her head. No. I I maybe I, she I, wants an Oscar. I maybe. doubt it's money. Yeah. It's I. I would argue it's probably Jared Leto kind of freaking Oscar doing it, and and mm-hmm. she wants that gold statue so bad. Like, and I don't, I don't know. I I really don't. That that's it, that's. And you know something that's a know. little bit different. I think about the Jared Leto role is that he was portraying a very vulnerable person, um, as because that film Dallas Buyers Club is about the AIDS epidemic in the late '80s, and he's. He's a, he's a, I think he's a pill dealer as well as he also is HIV positive. So he's portraying, right. or he's not just, he's portraying someone who's transgender, but also highlighting someone who's an, highlighting a marginalized population. Sure. Where this is more like transgender, transgender tourism. Right. And if, if for, for, for any listeners out there who, who would like to pose the argument that transgender tourism is what, what won him the Oscar, it's for another show. <laughs> <laughs> let's leave that and move past it. All right, let's stick with the Scar Joe thing. Uh, our other correspondence from Chelsea. Uh, Scarlett Johansson is a skilled actress. However, her being cast is the wrong move. Dante Gill, the character she would be playing in the movie, was a female to male trans man. Dante wasn't a man. Getting any female actress to play the role is problematic at the core because Dante wasn't a man who put on a suit to play a man wasn't a woman who put on a suit to play a man. He was a man born in a way that had to be corrected. When people see Scar Joe, they see a woman playing the role of a man. That's not who we are. This isn't a costume. This isn't a character. This is a state of being. This is from Chelsea, who requested, I think, that we identify her on the show as trans. Yes. Yes. And I feel fine doing that. Chelsea, thanks for writing in. Courtney, of course, thanks for writing in. I, I'm inclined to agree here. A little bit. Yeah, I, I just a little bit like I because she's Dante Gill was female to male. 
I hate to say I would have felt better if it was the other way, but I really would have. Like, if it was male to female, and this was a person who was born a female and had to have some things shifted to make it happen, um, to be happy, I should say, then if a female is playing them, in a way, I would feel better. I think I would, honestly. Like, that, that might be a slightly more accurate representation of who that person felt like they were. You're going the other way. I'm like, that just feels wrong all over. Yeah, like that doesn't feel right at all. Careful. I, I'm, okay. Yeah, it's you're all right. right. You're right. That came off. In, <laughs> this is hard. I didn't mean. Okay. What? But see, again, that's, take that's, the ball, please. Just run, run, okay. Yeah, get this away from me. Um, but that's exactly why why it's important to talk about this. Like that's that's where I want to wrap this up. Yeah. Is that it's it's easy to um for these really polarizing topics to just be on one side or the other and not have a conversation, not, ha not hear all sides and not try to understand each other because that's how we eventually, you know, through discourse gain understanding. Yep. <laughs> that's yeah. like, it, it takes like, you got to have these kind of tough conversations and kind of have your view, your views challenged. Um, I know I, I did in coming, kind of going through this topic and getting people uh, to write in. Um, so it's important to hear and discuss differing opinions. Yeah. That's the only way we move forward. Agreed. Um, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm glad we talked about this. I am. Even if somewhere along the way, I probably said something really offensive. I didn't mean to. Um, we could have like, we, we so could have dodged this. We could have just been like, nope, that sounds weird. We don't want to talk about it. But the fact is you're, you're exactly right. Like if this industry is going to go anywhere, we need to be willing to have conversations exactly like this one. And be able to get on the internet and say, hey, here's what we think. And have other people go, well, we think this. And, like, have a discourse about it. And and I think this stuff is, is ultimately important to making this business better. Making cinema bolder. Yeah, right. Bolder than it ever was before. Right, exactly. And we had, I, I'm, it, the movie, um, this one, the Oscar for Best Foreign Film, A Fantastic Woman, um, which fe features a transgender uh, woman who, um, that film is about... Uh, um, a man has a relationship with this woman and the man dies and his family comes in, you know, for the funeral. They find out that his girlfriend is, is transgender. They have a huge problem with that. And she's kind of ostracized, even though it's like his death and all this. It's a very powerful film that I have not watched, but I've read a lot about. Um, and so there are roles that it is changing. She is, I mean, she won... Oh no! I don't think she won the the Oscar, but she won the film won the Oscar. Um, yeah. So the landscape is definitely changing, um, but it's tough, and it's it takes growing pains. Like the, this is going to happen again. You're going to have other offensive casting choices, and it's it's unfortunate, but it's part of the process. Right. Um, I. I was going to say something about like, it's a long climb to the top of the hill. Just make up some stupid analogy <laughs> that like nobody cares Sometimes about. in life. The point is like, we're getting there. All right. And it, it's, it's going to happen. But if you, if you listen to this whole conversation and you think we're idiots or, or we missed the mark or we didn't touch on something, please let us know. Like, please, because yeah, like nobody's going to get informed if you don't say something and, and it can be frustrating. It can be tough. Um, but I, I, I think this stuff is important, and I'm glad we talked about it, and I'd like to talk about stuff like this more on this show. At least me. I don't know. Yeah, no, no yeah. for sure. It's, and it's, uh, 
I mean, it's it's uncomfortable sometimes. It's I, sure. like sometimes I'm. I mean, I don't want to get nervous about uploading this to the internet. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I sure. I was I debated whether or not uh, to continue going through this topic today. Oh, me too. Um, yeah. And it's not it's not the first thing. Yeah, to come up. But yeah, it's important to have these conversations because even even if I say something wrong, even if I say something offensive, and someone corrects me later, then that means I learned something. Yeah, totally. The others are not so bad. Our last movie we should talk about, and I'm, I'm <laughs> completely shifting gears. Completely shifting gears. Yes, Andy, you've been gracious enough to agree to take the summary for this. Please take it away. Ant-Man and the Wasp. So, how long have you been Ant-Man again? Not long. Uh, so this is Marvel's follow-up to 2016's uh, Ant-Man. Um... This picks up a, a couple years after the events of Civil War. We find the Ant-Man Scott Lang is under house arrest uh, because of that kind of issue with the Avengers that he was involved with. Uh, meanwhile, his other um, compadres, Dr. Hank Pym and Hope Van Dyne, are on a mission to find uh, their mother who was lost in the quantum realm, which we find out about in the first film. Um, and they they're almost there they need some equipment and then they eventually employ Scott Lang. They break him out of his house to help, help them solve this kind of puzzle to recover uh, or to find his mom. And then, and then there's obstacles along the way. There's some villains. It's fun. That's pretty much the setup. Um, so let's start with me. Uh, <laughs> I did not see the first movie, right? Bold place to come in on a movie podcast when I did not come correct. I did not see the first one. I don't know what it's about, but I've seen a boatload of Marvel movies. I've seen Ant-Man or Scott Lang, uh, as Paul Rudd's character, is appear in Avengers, Civil War. He also appeared... No, he wasn't in Infinity he's, War. He's just in, in Civil War. That's the only one? Yeah. Mm. Uh, I, I wasn't super into this movie. Right. And I again didn't see the first one. Like maybe I didn't have that precedent, but I know Marvel is so known for their serialized approach to seeing movies. Like you got to see all of them, and you got to see this one and that one um, to understand what's happening in this one. And I, I, I just i I wanted to see what it was like to see a Marvel, a direct Marvel sequel, without having the first one, and see how well. How, how well they do at picking up the pieces and saying, okay, for folks who weren't in it, here's catching you up. Right. I wanted to see what they did. And to that point, this movie does a great job. Yeah. Genuinely. I felt like it genuinely did a good job of filling me in on what happened and catching me up. Um, what did you think? Um, I really liked it. So I, I have seen the first one. And Ant-Man was the first movie that kind of everyone predicted this might be Marvel's first bomb or it might be Marvel's first kind of, you know, just even if, even if it's not a bad movie, it's going to bomb. Uh, sorry, I just said bomb. It's might be their first bad movie essentially, sure. which is what they said about guardians. And then guardians was huge. Um, now this didn't have quite the same success, but it was still the first one, a very good movie. I laughed a lot. It's humor is completely different and that continues in, into the second one. So we, you know, it's a lot of fun. There's good characters, good action, lots of good humor. It checks all the Marvel boxes we like, and it misses the Marvel boxes we don't like. At least I don't like. <laughs> um, uh, so sp uh, specifically, oh, I've lost my train, <laughs> train of thought. No, you mind if I, Go I ahead. Can pick it up? Yeah. Uh, this movie, I, I would agree with that to a point. 
I think it checks a lot of Marvel boxes. The problem is it checked all the boxes I didn't like. <laughs> okay, and it go didn't on. check any of the boxes I did like, and that was the issue. So I think we're going to have a good, a good discourse about this. This movie, to me, felt like, and to its credit, not to its detriment, felt like generic comic book movie number 12. It just felt like the most generic comic booky comic book book movie you could make. It consistently jumps the shark. It does wacky, out of this world things that it shouldn't do, that don't make sense in reality, but in the world of a comic book would totally work. And like right. it, man, it wears it on its sleeve. The movie's called Ant Man for God's sake. Like it has to. It has life-size giant ants, ants walking around that are programmable so they can just do things like play drum beats or work on a machine and that is completely acceptable in the world of the film it can shrink and immediately blow things up to any size in with with misplaced regard to velocity yeah <laughs> uh that that just comes and goes um it can shrink a, a an office tower building immediately Without any regard to its foundation or how the building was standing in the first, just completely <laughs> blows You're all it. of that. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And and this is my point. It blows all of that out the window, but in a way that is inherently charming because again, the movie's called Ant Man. Like it has to, and it yeah. knows it. Like it knows it can't be like uh, to think of another one like iron man where everything in iron man is relatively explained to kind of seem like it could be real right ant-man basically doesn't do that it's like we know it's ridiculous and yeah. we we're we're not only accepting that we're running with it we're we're we're, pl we're leaning into that turn and that's cool i just wasn't super into it but yeah what do you think yeah um a lot of those things, I felt like it would have helped if you'd seen the first one because they kind of explain like, oh, we can, I can talk to and program the ants. And so it, it gives you a little bit of that backstory to kind of accept it. It's a little bit harder. Um, one of the things that I really liked is that it's a much smaller movie, no pun intended. Um, you know, the other Avengers films are about saving the world, oh, saving, huge. saving the universe. The like universe. the stakes are just massive. Yeah. And this is a much smaller, it's more intimate. It's about we're looking for my long lost wife slash my daughter's long lost mother and this we're repairing relationships and you know scott has his 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 buddies who are ex-cons and are yeah. trying to start a business and so it's a much smaller film it all takes place in one city it's not like you know in the other avengers films you have like berlin new york london oh totally budapest generic city in russia like yeah. just all over the place so i like that it was just much smaller it, to me it's a little bit easier to keep up with yeah I agree. And even and it's funny because even in the sense of having something like the quantum realm, which is this kind of it's almost like Doctor Strange-esque, like mysterious yeah. place you can go. Um, even then, they don't spend all too much time in it. Like they still kind of keep it weird. You know, they keep yeah. it like its own segmented off thing. And they, they keep the movie tight in that way. And, and it does a good job of keeping that real. It doesn't do too much, like, jumping around in dimension. The characters might, but usually we're rooted in the reality we know, which helps keep you centered in the movie. One thing I did want to mention before we get too far into it is how the movie brings you up to speed from the last movie. In a way that, as far as I know, I've never noticed this. This is the first... This movie, this movie pioneers something in Marvel films that I've, I've never seen before. Stop me if you've heard this one. All right. Okay. This movie has a trailer for itself. 
I don't think what, you noticed this. No, go Hear ahead. Hear me out. This movie does not open with studio cards. It doesn't open with a Marvel logo. It it, it is as you're watching the film, right? You you get your trailer for for Mission Impossible <laughs> because of course that ran in front of this. And you get a trailer for the house with the clock in its walls. And you get a couple trailers for a couple other things. And then you get your your generic theater production trailer, which for AMC will be the stupid thing about getting a Coke at the movies. Right. Or for, for Regal, where I saw it, it'll be the stupid short film that two students made. Yeah. Uh, for Cinemark, it'll be turn off your phone, whatever, enjoy the movie. <laughs> it's the, then you get the 20-minute Marvel logo. <laughs> right. Except this movie doesn't do that. You don't get the Marvel logo. You don't get any kind. Like, whereas a movie normally would run, you know, the working title logo or Sony Pictures or anything, Warner Brothers. This doesn't do that. It starts, just like any other trailer, it starts with Michael Douglas talking, then flashback. And you're in the movie. Immediately. It is wild. And I, I was so impressed. It made me set, sit up in my seat. And this is something nobody else noticed. But, like... <laughs> It doesn't it doesn't have any kind of Marvel logo. It just starts cold. Mm-hmm. And it's wild. There's no music. It just the movie is on now. Yeah. And what they do in this like 2 minutes of movie is they have a flashback bit with Michael Douglas and 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 uh, a couple other characters. I don't know if we want to get the who they are or what they're about. You might have covered it in the plot. It's fine. And and they have a little flashback bit for like what happened before and and a little bit of setup for the movie. It's like 2 minutes long. And then you get the Marvel logo. And that little bit is essentially backstory from the first movie right. to catch you up. And if you didn't see the first one, it is it acts as a trailer for this movie. It is, here's what happened, here's what's coming. Right. And it was brilliant. Yeah. Nothing but props to Marvel. I was glad they did that because even though I've seen the first one, I could not remember a lot of it. Yep. And I think they counted on that. Super and, clever. And so it was, it was really good. Um, I wanted to get into the uh, villains. What do you think of the bad guys? I don't remember who the bad guys were. So we had we had a couple. So, I don't. Hold on. So we had Walton Goggins, who I love. Every time he's on screen, it's great. It's he's a, barely it's, a bad it's guy. It's a treat. He's great, though. You're yeah, right. Yeah, but he's a uh, plays uh, you know an illegal tech dealer with a southern drawl. And, of course. And as Classic he as Walton. he as yeah as he kind of always does. And yeah, I just really liked his character and his his dialogue. And he's always that like borderline sleazy, borderline classy sure. uh, arms dealer. He's and, good. Yeah. And so he's one, and then we also have um, Ghost, who's who, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. That was the other one. Right. Who God, you, how did I? Who's not apparently very that? forgettable. Uh, but you know, she has some sort of phasing technology, and she's after some of the same tech that um, Ant Man is, and so she's kind of an antagonist to them. Well, the villains. It's weird. The villains in this movie are essentially just in the way of the actual main conflict. It like. They're, they're, yeah, they, they're not really the source of that. They're not really the problem. They're kind of just hurdles the characters have to get over to solve what what is the main conflict of the film. Right. It's really odd in that way. Um, but they, yeah, then, they're, they're never really like they're never really a problem. It's never like we've taken you hostage and we've got a bomb like that never happens. Yeah. They're kind of just <laughs> there. I don't know. Well, and also the, the FBI is also, you know, constantly trying to ca- catch Ant-Man out of his house. Sure. You know, and so that's they're kind of. An antagonist as, as well. Yeah, with uh, a great, uh, great character played by Randall Park, who I yeah. really in- okay. He was in the interview. Real quick, he was in the interview. Um, almost all the performance in this movie I liked. Almost yeah. everybody was good. Uh, there wasn't really anybody that I felt like I was off kilter or I didn't like. Like everybody, I I, I enjoyed. So yeah, performance wise, great, but all around. 
Um, let's talk about the humor for a second. Let's. So, so I feel that I mean Marvel movies are known for their humor. They're all they're all known for being funny. And uh, what I liked about Ant Man in the first one is that it has a completely different style of of humor. A lot of Marvel laughs come from quips and just short remarks here and there. And what Ant Man does differently, and they did this in the first film, is they just have a, lo- a bunch of running gags. And some of them I just like were really effective for me and I laughed a lot. There's this whole thing about close up magic. Like Scott's been in his house. He was like, I've been, he's on the internet learning how to do, you know, card tricks and make stuff appear out of nowhere. And it's like, people keep asking about it because it's really impressive. Like throughout the whole movie. Right. It's just one of these, these silly gags. Uh, Michael Pena, who I will say, who I said, well, will play me one day in my biopic. You did say that. Um, He was hilarious in the first film. He, he's back and, He's he's always really funny, and he they did this in the first film where he does a flashback and he talks real quickly and does all the voices, and it's hilarious in the first film. They do it again in here; it's still hilarious. It's not quite as long, um, but yeah, it's just it's funny. There's some running gags, and it's it's a different kind of humor. It's a different style, and it, I really liked it. I I I liked it. I don't know if it always works. That was my issue. There, there's definitely moments when they come back on a gag again, and I, I think, okay, like, come on, like we. We got it, you know. And it's funny because, like, the further I get away from it, the funnier it is. The close-up magic of the theater was stupid. You're talking about it now. I'm like, yeah, I guess that was pretty funny. Like, <laughs> uh, that wasn't such a bad bit. Um, yeah, there's, a, there's a whole bit with a, with a Russian character and a Baba Yaga, which is pretty funny. Yeah. Um, completely does not necessarily fit the context of the situation, but not bad. But then there's moments where it doesn't work. And, and I've got one in particular. And if, if this worked for you, I'll be surprised. Okay, okay. You probably know what it is. Uh, no. <laughs> there's a bit where essentially Scott Lang, Ant-Man, uh, due to some, some some mental exercises in the quantum realm or something, is basically possessed by right. another character. Right. Did you laugh at all? I thought it was pretty funny. Stop. No, you did not. <laughs> did you really? I mean, I, I didn't think it was hilarious, but I thought oh, it was clever. Maybe. God, it was cringeworthy. Paul Rudd is acting like somebody he's not while also supposed to be Scott Lang. Like, it did not. I think it's supposed to kind of make you uncomfortable. It was so uncomfortable. <laughs> and I was like, this is not great. I, I did not enjoy it. But, hey, I, you know, that's just me. If you liked it, then what are you going to do? Um, I was really, really intrigued by the performances of folks like Lawrence Fishburne. Yeah. Or Michael Douglas or Michelle Pfeiffer. Um, older folks in the Marvel Universe. Because you, you so often get the young blood. Yeah. You get the new, you know. And it was weird that, like, three characters in this are, are older actors and actresses. Um, and they all did a great job. They yeah. All, they all they all sold it up the river. Yeah, none of them felt too, like... I never felt like any of them were going to look at the camera and wink. You know, like, I'm just in this for the money. Like, it, it felt very legit. Yeah. yeah. And I think the other thing I like is that, you know, the, the heroes are kind of normal nerdy guys it's not like captain america or thor with like you know bulging muscles and rip people in half it's um you know it's scott lang has a master's degree in chemistry or science or or whatever and uh so does hope van dyne the the wasp which we should talk about a little bit we should i yeah i can't deny that this movie god it just it just felt like its own thing you're right like it's got its own brand of humor but it just has its own brand of approach and the same way something like black panther does it does not feel like the other marvel movies it's got its own something and like it's difficult for me to describe what it is and what's what's a bummer is for me it didn't work like i didn't enjoy it that much but with that many swings at the fence with that many approaches with that many different marvel properties inevitably you're gonna land on a couple you don't like yeah um 
So that was just me. Uh, about about the wasp. Yeah. What did what did you think? Yeah. Uh, so Evangeline Lilly, uh, who was in The Hobbit and uh, came rose to fame through Lost. Lost. <laughs> totally. um, yeah. She plays the wasp, who is she kind of has the same same abilities as Ant Man. She can shrink. She can grow. She has wings. She's got blasters. Um, great role. A lot of fun. Really good action scenes. I was disappointed we didn't get more kind of action with her and Ant Man. Kind of at the same time. It's, it seemed to be more of one or the other. Yeah, and I was disappointed by the like I I, <laughs> I don't mean to grandstand, uh, especially after our Scarlet Joe conversation and say like the woman totally takes the backseat to the man in this movie, but like dude, she totally gets she's totally sidelined by yeah. by Scott Lang at almost every opportunity, which is a bummer because uh, yeah, like I I hate to say she was arguably one of my favorite part like my favorite roles in the movie, like totally she was great, mm-hmm. she was really interesting and like I liked her character and she had this. Okay, this kind of bummer for dynamic with her dad, where it's like, oh, my dad's the most important, whatever. But like, I, I really did like the way she kind of picked up the mantle and was like this new cool role. Um, and it bummed me out that yeah, ultimately when it came down to the nitty gritty, the hard action, it was Ant Man all the way. Like, <laughs> not not the Wasp, no sir. She's left behind the and the, and that that bummed me out. I was like, man, I wish you guys could have like leaned into that a little bit more. You know, he yeah. He says he's gonna go do something. She's like, no, no, I got this. You stay back here. And like, she gets some cool fight scenes. To be fair, to be fair, there's some cool stuff. But at the end of the day, it did feel a little bit like okay, like woman taking backseat to man, and that bummed me out. So that's right. just me. I, I don't know. But not to say the action wasn't good. Like, not to say it wasn't wasn't a good time. But um, yeah, yeah, and know. it's it's nice to see another you know female lead in in the Marvel universe. Sure, we need more of them. Um, which I was gonna say, this kind of leads into the next Marvel film we have. It's gonna be quite a wait, actually. Um, Captain Marvel in is that the, the next one in the spring? Yeah. Oh yeah, wow, so that's a long wait. It does make me wonder. There's the, there's that great little scene in here. It was in the trailer. So I don't feel bad at spoiling it when when. Uh, Paul Rudd, Scott Lang, Ant-Man, asks Evangeline Lilly, Hope Van Dyke, the Wasp, uh, if I had asked you to come to Germany, where the events of Civil War happened, I guess, yeah. would you have come? And she's got got an answer in this movie that's goofy. But I wonder if, like, God, that must have that must have hurt as an actress. You're like, why wasn't I in Civil War? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, what the hell, guys? Forget like, you guys. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know. Uh, I don't know if there's any, uh, if anybody's sore about that. But any other thoughts before we move on? I think we're ready for recommendations. Oh, one more thing while I'm thinking about it. Um, the way the action works, the minimizing, maximizing, like I said, very easy to overthink, which is where I was. That's that's big reason I didn't enjoy it. But still cool effects. Really, oh, really yeah. cool. Yeah, like it's it's pretty it, cool it the makes way it for, all works. The it, science of it, you know, I, I don't know. Yeah, it makes for a lot of good gags and also and a lot of great action. Yeah. You know, there's one in the scene was in the trailer where, you know, they have the little car or the minimized car driving underneath another one and then they make it, full size and it just flips like this massive SUV. Yeah. You know, and it's like you get some you get some cool super cool scenes because of things like that. Is Ant-Man and the Wasp uh OP? Are they too strong? Cuz this movie might make them look a little strong. Like there there are some things in this movie I'm like Captain America could not beat Ant-Man. Like that's what it looks like. It looks like they are invincible because you can't hit them. It's impossible. Like they, they uh, a little bit. Well, that's the thing in the this they did a better job of of them kind of having their equal in the first film with sure. where they fight yellow jacket or hornet, someone like that. I want to say it's yellow jacket. Yeah. <laughs> Corey stole, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, love, because he, because he has, work. he has kind of the same technology. And so that it is kind of a more even match. It's like Iron Man, the first one, right? Yeah. Where, um, 
bald Jeff, Jeff the dude. Yeah, Jeff Bridges uh, gets a gets a gets a suit and fights Iron Man. Um, yeah, I guess I don't have much more to say about it. I'm I'm bummed I didn't enjoy it more. I need to go back and watch the first one. Maybe I'll be yeah. Here. I like, think yeah. Maybe there, I there is this great gag involving Thomas the Tank Engine, which I won't say anything more <laughs> about. But it's it was like the highlight laugh of the first film. Okay, yeah, I don't know what that means, but I'm sure it's a good time. Um, Andy, would you recommend Ant Man and the Wasp? Yeah, absolutely. It's a lot of fun. It's entertaining. It it kind of brings the stakes down to earth a little bit more. It's funny. It's got its own brand of humor. Um, and I really liked it. And I'm interested to see how they're going to tie them into the rest of the Marvel universe. Yeah, I, I would recommend it with the understanding that it is a Marvel movie, not like all the others, and that you got to be a little bit, got to be open-minded. Like you got to, you know, be ready. If you've seen the first one you'll, and you liked it, I'm sure you'll like this one. Uh, if you haven't, like me, and trying it for the first time. Understand that the, the, the universe of Ant-Man is not quite the same as the universe of the other Avengers, uh, whereas they might want you to believe it is. It, it's a little bit more self-aware in a tongue-in-cheek kind of capacity, and it kind of wears its heart on, the sleeve and, on, on its sleeve in a charming way. So if you can understand that um, and just, you know, be ready to laugh and have a good time and not, not overthink it too much like I clearly did, I think you'll enjoy it. So, yeah, that's uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp, I guess. Yeah, and with that, I think it just about wraps our week. There's one other thing I wanted to mention um, before we get to what we're going to be doing uh, next week. Uh, I did go see another movie this week, an uh, animated film called Fireworks out of G Kids. I want to say the studio who does Studio Ghibli. It's Ghibli. It's by the director of uh, what is the name of that movie? I don't know. It's an animated film. Stall. Right. Stall. Stall, right? <laughs> Andy, dig me out of this. Um, no, it's it's a it's a it's a it's like an anime film out of out of Japan. Uh, came out this year. It has a fifty on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, I dug it. Cool animation, kind of a, a cool coming of age story about a guy who falls in love with a girl in high school, and there's some time travel, kind of alternate dimension stuff involved. I don't know. It's kind of fun. Uh, it's it's something. I figured I, I would mention it because I bothered to go see it at a theater instead of watching the original. And man. That being said, that just about wraps our week. Uh, for If you want to get involved with the show, if you want to tell us what you thought, if you have any thoughts on our Death of Cinema segment, please email us at mail at offscriptfilmreview.com. Check out our website, offscriptfilmreview.com. Next week, we're on hiatus, believe it or not. Yeah, next couple of weeks, we're uh, taking a break. Yeah, I'm going on vacation. That's the only reason. Uh, there's really not a whole lot to it. Also, there's lots of trash on there's not really anything i don't mean to, to put see. you on the spot but any any notable trash out there skyscraper Ooh, we're gonna miss skyscraper that's a bummer uh but the week after we are gonna come back strong with mission impossible fallout super excited to never see that trailer again. <laughs> no, this is what's gonna happen you're still gonna have to see that trailer like the oh, next totally. week it's gonna still be oh, playing yeah and, and then after it'll be on dvd and digital and we'll see it again now available on itunes yeah. it'll be all over the so place. to remind our viewers we've had to watch this stupid trailer oh, since God. the super bowl for the last seven months we've seen the mission impossible trailer no lie at, I, at every movie just this about. is something maybe i should try to do before we do the next show Go back, look at all our episodes since the Super Bowl, and see which movies it would have run in front of. Because I bet it's ev- it's almost every one. Yeah, pretty I mean, much every stupid. big one that's not an indie. If you yeah, if it is if it is a, a movie even remotely aimed at adults, it ran in front of it. Like it is stupid how many times we've seen that trailer. But uh, as far as our other movie goes, we're gonna be streaming something, and we don't know what yet, honestly. And we got a couple of weeks to figure it out, so we'll probably settle on something between then. I think I'm gonna set up a Twitter poll. 
which is wild for those of you on Twitter. Most of you aren't. Uh, our off script cast, that's our Twitter account, and we're going to try to decide on one of four movies. And here they are Mulholland Drive by David Lynch on Amazon, V for Vendetta by I don't know on Amazon. Also, yeah. Blue Valentine on Netflix, and Her, which is on Amazon. So three Amazon movies, one Netflix movie. The movies are Mulholland Drive, V for Vendetta, Blue Valentine, or Her. And if you have a preference, if you think there's one we should take a look at, let us know at our email, mail at offscriptfilmview.com. It's the fourth time I've said it. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, wherever you can, and we'll be excited to check it out. Do you have any, uh, any favorites out of there? Um, I'm leaning, leaning towards Mulholland Drive. I kind of am too because I've never seen it. And I've always heard it's incredible. And what a, what what better way to come back strong than Mission Impossible Mulholland mm. Drive? It did. It was on AFI's like top. It was number one in their top movies of the 21st century. <sighs> the only reason I don't want to watch it is because I feel like it's going to be one of those movies I watch once for the podcast, and then as soon as it's over, I go I have to watch this again for the podcast. Probably like, I have to <laughs> probably <laughs> have to get into it twice. Um, otherwise, yeah, they're all solid entries. I think so. It is what it is. That being said, any other things? Any other thoughts? I think we're done. I think that's it. From Offscript, the home of Bold Cinema, I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Thanks for listening.